have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. It's on page 809 if you don't have a copy of the scriptures of your own. Hope you'll use one of those pew Bibles, so page 809. We started a little mini-series last week, taking a break from our study in the book of Romans on glimpses of Christ, and this is the second sermon in that series leading up to Resurrection Sunday on April the 17th. So Matthew 4, if you'll please find your way, I would like to read to verse 11. So beginning in verse 1, very familiar words. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Father, we pray now as we open up your perfect word that you would teach us, that you would feed us with the bread of life. We ask, Lord, that this morning we would be accurate to your word, and that it would be planted deep into our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, Mike Wallace, the father of Chris Wallace, who was the host of Fox News Sunday, did an interview on 60 Minutes, that news interview show on Sunday evenings, with Yehel Dinur. Yehel Dinur was a Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz. And he was one of the principal witnesses in the, or at the Nuremberg trials in the 1940s. During this interview, there was a point where Wallace plays a clip of Denur, where he was a witness for the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Now, the trial of Adolf Eichmann took place 20 years after the Nuremberg trials. And just a little bit about Adolf Eichmann, he was a German-Austrian who organized what's referred to as the final solution how to deal with the Jews, the Jewish question. He created and really was the mastermind in organizing the ghettos and the extermination camps. Last weekend, I was able to go to the Holocaust Museum with my youngest son, and we walked through and we saw some of the photos and the media of this particular trial. For 20 years or so, Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, was on the lam. He was on the run. He was discovered... In Argentina, 20 years later, in 1961, he was arrested, brought to trial, and it was in this trial where Yehal Dinur was called back to be a witness against Eichmann. The clip Wallace shows, and you can see this on Google, you can see it on YouTube, but please don't watch it now. Uh, you'll notice that um, Yehal Dinur, when he gets up to the witness stand, 
begins to shake and he begins to sob and he literally falls down and passes out. That clip is the one that Wallace plays on the 60 Minutes. And so he's inquiring from Yehel Dinyar, why did you pass out? Why were you sobbing? Why did you react that way when you saw, when you came face to face with Adolf Eichmann after 20 years? It was interesting, Yehel Dinyar's answer was kind of prodded by Wallace. So Wallace says, was it because you hated him? Was it because you were reminded of all of the atrocities that he had organized? And could you envision him sending others to the extermination camps? And he said, no, actually, it wasn't any of those things. That was the surprising part of the interview. Denier said, after 20 years, when I came face to face with this person who was almost like a godlike figure who was sending people to their immediate death, I realized he was just an ordinary man. And at that moment, I was afraid about myself. He said, I, I saw that because he's an ordinary man, I'm capable of the very same thing. He said, I am he. And then he says, Eichmann is us. You could tell Wallace was surprised by his answer. It wasn't what he was anticipating. And I think there's much that Yehel Dinyar says in that comment that in every thief, if we're all honest, we can see ourselves stealing. With every adulterer, we can see ourselves committing adultery. With everyone commits murder, we can see ourselves also being a murderer. And what Denure saw in Eichmann, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, I hope that you see yourself in the first Adam that same way. You know, we mentioned a few weeks back in our study of Romans that God set up Adam. He chose Adam to be our federal head. And when he chose to eat that fruit in the garden and disobey God's command, he represented all of us. And in Adam, we all fell. And in Adam, we are all sinners. We all, in Adam, we all die as a result of that choice. But here in Matthew 4, the second Adam is now coming to the moment of temptation. Where the first Adam fell, the second Adam shows up. So after his baptism, after the voice from heaven from the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. After the Spirit comes down as a dove and we see the Trinity there in that baptism of Christ, now the Spirit also sends Jesus into the wilderness. So this morning, I want us to behold him there, the risen lamb, my spotless righteousness. You see, like Denure, we ought to see ourselves in the first Adam, guilty, helpless, doomed to an eternity without God because of our sin, but in the second Adam, what we have here is the second Adam goes through the similar temptations, but he provides for us this perfect, spotless righteousness. So that line, of course, is from one of my favorite modern hymns. It's been modernly re reworked, and it's before the throne of God. And that line is, behold him there, my perfect, spotless righteousness. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to behold our perfect, spotless righteousness. And my first point this morning is the sinlessness 
of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, hopefully you can see those on your handout, and they're going to progress those slides where you can see the blanks. But sinlessness, Jesus, the second Adam, did not yield a temptation. Rather, he completely submitted to the will, to the word, and the worship of God. If Jesus was not sinless, he could not save us. If Jesus was not sinless, or if he sinned, he could not be our substitute. And so the sinlessness of Christ is not just this theoretical doctrine left for the seminaries. It has incredible practical value. I want to remind you that no human being that's ever lived on the planet could we say this of. Right? Is there any other human whom we could say was sinless? No one besides Jesus. And this narrative here, I would like to divide it up into three categories. As we just briefly fly over it, it's very familiar. But I believe there are three areas, three categories, that the devil, Satan, that serpent, the accuser of the brethren, is going to tempt our Lord Jesus Christ. And these are similar areas, I believe, that you could see even in the temptation of Adam and Eve. And I think you could further say that you see these similarities in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 that describe the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. But I want to put them in three categories, and it wouldn't be good preaching if we didn't alliterate, yes? <laughs> well, I'm going to try. First of all, you see the appetite here. There's a desire to enjoy things. We're told after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want you to see that this is a legitimate appetite, yes? In fact, as we look at it, it's almost surprising that this is even a temptation. It's, it's difficult to recognize it as like a big temptation. I mean, wouldn't you think when the son of God shows up on the planet that Satan would pull out his big one? I mean, like something really, like Ouija board, black magic. I mean, something really, really dark. First temptation comes along with natural appetites. So we would hardly recognize it as a temptation. But what is he tempting the Lord Jesus to do here? Now, I don't know a lot about fasting. I do some intermittent fasting, but it's more for health than it is for spirituality. And I do try on occasions when I'm, um, really focused and burdened for some area um, that I'm wanting the Lord to answer me about or give me clarity about. I have practiced some fasting, but nothing in comparison to 40 days. So I certainly don't want to come to you as someone who understands what fasting is like. I have done some reading about it, and my understanding is after about the third or fourth day, some of the strongest hunger pains leave you. But when you get long into fasting, somewhere around the 35th day to the 40th day, the pains become overwhelming in terms of your body needing nourishment. And the, the, the language here seems to indicate that he's come to a new point of real, legitimate, painful hunger. And at this point, Satan tempts him. He's been driven into the wilderness. And just see the contrast between the luscious Garden of Eden and this dry, barren wilderness where the Lord Jesus is being tempted. But what is the temptation? The temptation is pretty simple. Use your divine prerogative and turn the stones into luscious bread. 
Now, I do not want to make any of you hungry about this, but I'm looking forward to after the service today, I plan to go to Olive Garden and I plan to enjoy those luscious breadsticks. You know what I'm saying? If you don't love those breadsticks, something's wrong with you, brother or sister. It's just amazing, right? And, and they're bottomless, too, which makes them even better. I would like some more breadsticks. That's your fourth one. More breadsticks, please. But here Satan says, you're hungry. Why not use your divine prerogatives? Why not use your power to turn these rocks into bread? Now, would that have been sinful? What we can gather from this text is that this would have been outside of complete dependence upon the Father. And the Lord Jesus repeatedly said, that he completely depended upon the Father. He always did the will of his Father. So he could have used this prerogative to gratify his earthly natural desires. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Here is our spotless righteousness. And if the God-man had chosen to use his divine prerogatives at this moment, he would not have provided for us any example of what disciples do in temptation because we do not have those same powers. And yet he reminds Satan that there is a nourishment that is even better than a natural desire being satisfied and it's actually obeying the very words of God. And he quotes from Deuteronomy. Interestingly enough, as he quotes from Deuteronomy, one of the books of the Bible that will be mostly attacked by liberal critics and those that will deny the very inspiration of the Bible. So this first area is physical. And I just want to say, as an application, are you surprised that when Satan comes knocking on your door, as it were, and tempts you, that it is more often not the black magic of our world, and certainly Satan is involved in that. It's not the Ouija boards or the, the, the black magic. It is oftentimes just simply asking you to use a desire outside of the very will and word of God. Whether that be a sexual desire, or that be an eating desire, or it be a resting desire, and a desire for amusement, and a desire for entertainment, and a desire to just exit reality. All of those somewhat natural human desires. Nothing sinful about the desire to be hungry, or the desire of hunger. I want you to see, secondly, though, there's ambitions. The second avenue or category is more mental. And this is the desire to achieve things, we could say. He takes him now to the pinnacle of the temple, probably the southern wing overlooking the Kidron Valley. That's at least what Josephus, think, Josephus the historian, thinks is being talked about here. Here's what the text says. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sat him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If accurately it is overlooking the Kidron Valley, Josephus says anyone looking down would be very afraid. He's basically saying, leap into the abyss and demonstrate your trust by putting God to the test. In the vernacular here, Satan is saying, do a trick. Let's see some stunting. Let's see something that will dazzle people. Now, I don't know that this is certain, but it seems like it may be that what was happening here is Satan is tempting the Lord Jesus 
to demonstrate who he is before what he kept referring to as my hour has not come. Remember, this was the first thing he said to his mom at that first miracle in Cana. She ran out of wine, or she was at least in charge of the wine, and they ran out of wine, and she comes to Jesus, and she says, we're out of wine, and he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not come. Again, teenagers, I don't recommend that you use that kind of language to your parents. It was a different way that he was expressing it, but he was saying, my hour hasn't come. That moment of revealing who I am hasn't come, and I think that hour also is in reference to the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. But here Satan is saying, you can achieve something by a trick, by, by uh, some showmanship, by a stunt. I mean, if you were rescued right before you splattered on the ground, wouldn't everybody believe in you? And again, this is an area, this ambition, this desire to achieve things, this desire for people to speak well of us. It's like all of us can relate to this and say, yes, I, I, I can sense the thoughts and the reflections and perhaps even the advertisements, whether they be on the television or the computer, are just these thoughts about how could I make myself a little more popular and a little more well accepted by others? How can I demonstrate for people what I really know, who I really am? And here our perfect spotless righteousness is being tempted in this category and he responds it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And finally, I want you to see that he continues on after being defeated twice. And he tempts him with avarice. And again, I'm, I'm stretching it here, but I wanted to keep my A's. Avarice, of course, an old English word that means greed, a desire for wealth or gain, covetousness. A desire for ease can be another expression of the word avarice. And this was a desire to obtain things. So you'll see the first temptation category is physical, the second is mental, and the third seems to be even, even pointed more spiritually. He says, and again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Perhaps this was a vision. You may say, well, how could Satan do that? Well, we're told that he is the prince and power of the air. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, it seems that, and many commentators agree on this one, and I'm not sure if I see it in the text, but it, it seems to explain some of what's going on here, that, that perhaps Satan was offering the Lord Jesus at this moment an opportunity to have the crown without the cross. To, to, to kind of flatten and smooth the surface. So rather than having to go through the cross and rise from the dead and ascend and have his session and then return in glorious fashion as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, you could have all of this glory and all of these kingdoms. I will give it all to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. What our Lord Jesus demonstrates for us through these three areas of temptation is not just a strategy on how to deal with temptation. I do believe there's wonderful example here. But let's not forget what we're looking at. We're looking at the second Adam, who is our perfect spotless righteousness. And if he fails and succumbs to these temptations, he cannot be the sinless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So I think sometimes we come to this text, and 
I will be the first to say to you, I'm guilty of it often. I come to this text and I want five, six strategies for fighting temptation in Brian's life. And there are plenty of them here. Please don't get me wrong. But I do not believe that's the main purpose of the text. I believe the main purpose of the text is to tell us that our first Adam, who we were born in, he was sinful, and we now are sinful because of the first Adam. But here the second Adam is sinless. You know, the whole testimony of God's word is that Jesus Christ is sinless. Amen? I'll give you a few texts. Hebrews 7.26, Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. Hebrews 7.26. 1 John 3.5, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit even found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God has made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been, every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, how would you like to do this? The Lord Jesus in John 8 actually looks around and he says, who of you, and here's how he says it, which one of you will convict me of sin? That is a foolish question to ask in any company for any of us, yes? I would be extremely foolish this morning to say to you, which one of you convicts me of sin? All of you could stand up. If you know me well, my family would be the first to stand up. We know of a lot. But here the Lord Jesus very public, which one of you convicts me of sin? Have you ever been around someone and the presence of their godliness, we know they're not perfect, but, but you almost feel convicted by being around them? Do you have anybody in your life like that? Joe and I remember a man, and he's still alive, and he's, he's still serving in a local church we were at in New Hampshire, but his name's Ed Jaworski. Ed Jaworski was one of those guys who, when he was in, at Moody, he got to go and visit A.W. Tozer. Oh, I wish I could have done that. But whenever he'd pray, I was almost like, I felt like I was in holy ground. I almost felt like I was eavesdropping on a very personal conversation. I was like, he knows God. You can't pray that way in public if you're not praying that way in private. Have you been around people like that? But one of the things you notice about people like that is, is the saintlier they become, the more conscious they seem to become of their own sin. We see this in the life of the Paul, right? You know, he, he ends up being the chief of sinners. But the Lord Jesus never did that. He, he told others to confess their sins to the Father, but he never confessed one sin. And he, and he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? And then we're told that there was opportunity for many people to do that. Judas even said of him, the one that sold him for the silver. He said, I've sinned by portraying innocent blood. The malefactor on one side of the Lord Jesus when he was crucified said this, this man, he's only known him a couple hours, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion, the Roman centurion, what did he say of the Lord Jesus after his crucifixion? Truly, this was the Son of God. Pilate and his wife Remember, his wife says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. And Pilate kept coming out saying, I find no fault in him. He even washed his hands to try to cleanse himself ceremonially because there was nothing he could find at fault 
Even the demons, do you notice this in like Mark and other passages in the gospel? The demons are like, we know who you are. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. I do not believe as we float our little boat on this text that anybody's ready to deny the sinlessness of our Savior. But I want you to behold in there your spotless righteousness because no sinless Savior means no Savior at all. And I hope when we read and see this glimpse of Christ that our heart explodes to think that our Lord Jesus, the God-man, he never had a covetous, envious, lustful, bitter, suspicious thought. He never once spoke a corrupt, hasty, gossipy, untrue word. He never once disobeyed one of the commandments ever. In fact, it was not that he just didn't commit any sin. He never omitted any of God's commandments. This is our spotless righteousness. So behold your Savior. Behold your Christ, who Satan is trying to tempt and cause to fall the second Adam, but to no avail. Even wonder what it was like growing up in the home of Jesus. I've mentioned this to you before. It was the ultimate WWJD. I don't know if there were bracelets then or t-shirts, but I'm convinced that his brothers and sisters heard it often. Why can't you be just a little bit more like Jesus? You know, they thought he was crazy at first, and we're told that the brothers of the Lord Jesus tried to bring him home and say, you know what, you're acting crazy. But later we're told that James, his half-brother, believed in him, wrote a book of the Bible. What took place? What changed? Well, I, I, I'm sure that when Jesus said, who's the first to convict me of sin, I know in my family that anybody, any child in my family that would say that, if their siblings were around, they would say, I'm ready to talk. But there was no one to convict him of sin because he was sinless. But that brings us to our second question today, one that's a little more philosophical, and maybe our little boat that's floating really gently on the pond is going to go below the water a little bit in a submarine here for a moment. And I want to give you another word, impeccability. The impeccability. So we know this answer to this question, did Jesus sin? And the answer is, okay, you can do better than that. Did Jesus sin? But here's the question, could Jesus have sinned? See, this is a question that has often come up, came up, and in the first 400 years of the church, the whole doctrine of Christology was one that was uh, debated. There were councils, there were discussions, there were creeds written. So here's the question, could Jesus have sinned? We, we know that he didn't, but could he? Now, this word impeccability is from a Latin word, Peccable means the ability to sin, and M, of course, is the negating of that, not able to sin. And basically, the two categories in the Latin phrases are able not to sin, which means there is the possibility that he could have sinned, or not able to sin. Now, I want to suggest to you that I believe the Word of God is very clear, in my study of it, that Christ could not have sinned. And I want to tell you why I believe that. 
And I want you to consider these reasons. First of all, impeccability or impeccable. He was impeccable. Christ could not sin because of his immutability, his faithfulness. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. If there was a possibility that Jesus Christ, the God-man, could have sinned, we would understand that that possibility would still be true today. That the possibility that Jesus, the God-man, could sin, if it were possible before, it would be possible again. And I do not believe that anything changes. You hear that word mutable, right? We, we hear the word mutations there. Mutations is when something changes. Do we mutate? Yes. Some of you are in a good mood today, but you were in a bad mood yesterday. Or maybe the opposite. You know you change, but God changes not. I think also the impeccability or the, the inability for Christ to sin is also true because of his deity. His omnipotence, his omniscience. We're told in James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. We're told in Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. But in 1 Timothy 3.16, we're told that God was manifest in the flesh. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, we looked at last week, he has become flesh. The word has become flesh. In Matthew 1.23, what does the name Emmanuel mean? God with us. What we see about the God-man is there was impossibility for him to sin because he is the God-man. Sin will frequently appeal to our ignorance, but the omniscient one was never so able to be deceived. A third reason that I believe that Christ was unable to sin, and I'm going somewhere with this, so those of you that are looking for the application, just hold on. Impeccable because of the unity of his person, and we're going to speak about this more in depth next week, God willing. It's clear in the scriptures, and this was made uh, very clear in terms of adoption of creeds early on in the history of the church, but our Lord Jesus has two natures. He's 100% man and he's 100% God. Romans 1.3, 1 Timothy 2.5, just a couple of passages to see that. But he's one person. Now, there are Great descriptors that we'll talk about next week about how that those two persons are not mixed into one. John 17, 23, 1 John 4, 2 tell us that although he has two natures, he's 100% God and 100% man, he's one person. In other words, he is always referred to as he or him, not they or them. He is in one location. He has one zip code. He is the God-man. One of the creeds or confessions speak of him as the theanthropic, the theanthropic, the anthropic. Okay, try saying that five times. The God Man. He's one God Man. He's theanthropic. He's one divided, un undivided person. How do we express this? I want you to see that this is expressed by Strong. I think, and I want to read something from one of his his systematic theology that I think is helpful. He says, The orthodox doctrine holds that in the one person, Jesus Christ, there are two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, each in its completeness and integrity, and that those two natures are organically 
and indissolubly united, yet so that no third nature is formed thereby. In other words, what we'll see next week is, is there's not a schizophrenic nature to him. It's not like, is the God acting or is the human acting? He's one God-man. So the reason I believe that he was impossible for Jesus, the God-man, to sin is because of the unity of his person. Now this is going to bring up an objection that I hope you're coming to right now. The temptation, if he was unable to sin, doesn't seem to be real. How could the temptation we just studied be real if he could not sin? Well, I just want to remind you that as we understand temptation, as we understand the pressure and the provocation that Satan, the evil one, is giving on the Lord Jesus here, that he gave to Adam in the garden, that he gave to Eve in the garden, one of the things we need to remember is that the more intense a temptation is, it's not less intense because you don't yield to it. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. A, a weightlifter who needs somebody to spot him, which would be me. If I were trying to weightlift, let's say 200 pounds, it's just pull one out of the hat. I, I would need spotters because it's probably not going to happen. Now, if I have the spotters there and I, I need help as I'm pushing it back up, that would say that I yielded to the temptation at some point that I needed my spotters help. If the Lord Jesus, for instance, or somebody who's stronger than me takes that 200 pounds and pushes it up without any help, without any assistance, no spotters, did they have something less in terms of the struggle of the weight, or did they have more? You could even illustrate it like this. Gold is purified in fire. But let's say that it's purified all the way. There, there's nothing left to take out any um, negative properties, anything that's less than pure gold. Is there any less intensity to that fire? when there is purity of gold than there was when it took the dross away? What we see with the Lord Jesus is his ability not to sin or his inability to sin, as we see it in the scriptures, doesn't make his temptation any less. Maybe another way to illustrate it, I think these help, at least for me in my simple mind, those storms that we see from time to time where you'll have rows of trees and 50 mile an hour, 60 mile an hour wind knocks down every tree except one. Let's imagine that some of those gusts, or maybe even sustained winds, got to 100 miles an hour. That one tree that's left standing, would we be able to say that that one tree didn't experience temptation like the other trees that got knocked down? Well, no, we simply say that that was the tree that was able to withstand 100 mile an hour sustained winds. I want you to see that the impeccability of Christ is something to rejoice in. And I think this will probably lead us to our discussion next week, but I want to give you one other illustration. Some of us begin to wonder, we'll say, how did the God-man, he had no ability to sin, he did not sin, and we're seeing here what I would like to suggest to you, that he had no ability to sin. How does that work with his two natures? One of the illustrations that's been helpful to me is to think of it this way. Imagine someone in the year 1400, okay, go back then, and they're in a math class, got a big math problem to, to solve, and they have a pocket calculator. Now, you probably know that in 1400, there was no pocket calculators. Let's imagine that the problems are given on the test, the person pulls their pocket calculator out and, and, and solves the problem. 
what would you say? They what? They cheated. That's not fair. Let's imagine, though, they had the pocket calculator in the pocket, but they never used it. Completed the problems perfectly, but they never used it. That's a faulty illustration. It ends. But here's one that might be helpful as well. Imagine someone is trying to complete the longest swim unaided. Now, my looking this up, I think the longest swim is 78 miles, but I may be wrong. But let's imagine it's 78 miles. That's the record. This is an unbroken swim that this swimmer is trying to accomplish. Let's imagine it's in Lake Michigan, maybe. And this person realizes that they've swam 50-something miles, but they are concerned they're going to start having some cramps at mile 52, 53. But what's provided is a little boat to follow them along, just in case. So, so we know because a little boat's there, this person is not going to what? Not going to drown. So there's no ability for that person to drown, but there is the possibility that they will not accomplish what they set out to accomplish. What we see in the temptation of our Christ is he was sinless, no possibility to sin because he's the God-man, but his temptation was no less than the temptations that we experience. That's why in Hebrews 4.15, and this brings us to this, his sympathy, because Jesus has been tempted in every point of temptation just like us, He's able to sympathize and help us in our temptation. Hebrews 4.15 is key. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without what? Sin. I almost brought these this morning, but then I thought, I will freak somebody out. And I may make a mistake, and then I would really pay for it. I was going to bring two gasoline jugs, containers, Okay, now some of you are saying, I'm glad you didn't. And I, I, I was going to have one gasoline jug over here with maybe some gasoline in it and, and maybe another one, and, and the security is really glad I didn't do this. And then I was going to have another one over here with water in it, okay? Now, just imagine. I didn't do it, so everybody can be at ease, but imagine that I did. I want you to understand that in the temptations that we experience, there's something inside of us that answers to the seduction to sin. And in our Christ, there was nothing to answer to the temptations. Even we see Adam, a creature created by God who fell. We see angels created by God who fell. But the God-man, because it was like a, a piece of metal that could be bent, that had been welded to an iron bar, there was no possibility for him to sin. So we can place a match inside of a gasoline jug, and what will happen? Explosion. You can place a match in a gasoline jug with water and nothing will happen except There was nothing inside of our spotless righteousness that would respond to sin. But in every point, he was tempted. In every category, some would say, well, does that mean chronologically? Well, in some ways, all the way up to 33, he experienced the temptations of being a young boy, of being a teenager, of being a, a college career age of being a young adult. There are those that ask the question, did he experience every type of temptation? Did he experience sexual temptation? Did he experience temptation to depression and temptation to all sorts of other areas that we struggle in and our human struggles? And the answer is, passage says he was pressed in every point, like as we are, yet without sin. 
So what's the application here? I want to just give you a few as we conclude. First of all, the more you know Christ, the more you worship Christ. There's too much talk about Jesus being like us and Jesus being our buddy. And I believe Matthew 4 ought to be one of those moments, like the transfiguration, where we just have an open jaw. And we just see the the God-man who is now providing for us this perfect righteousness by living actively, obeying the law of God. Number two, Jesus did exemplify strategies for resisting temptation. Do you notice what happened in this passage? We notice that after he's baptized, the Spirit of God comes on him and drives him where? In the wilderness. We're later going to see after the temptation, the Spirit drives him to another place. You'll see this in other Gospels. So what we notice about the Lord Jesus is in the midst of these temptations, sometimes I think we think he plugged himself into his divine hard drive. You know, I hear people talk about what happened with Jesus, and so he's there and he's being tempted, so this is the part where he, he kind of takes his divine hard drive and plugs into the deity part. So that he wasn't tempted in all points like as we are. But I want you to see that the Spirit of God, he is depending on the power of the Spirit of God, that mystery of the third person of the Trinity empowering him. But also he depends on the what? The very words of God. He had memorized so many passages, evidently, that he could, at the temptation, he could exactly apply the passage of Scripture. What do we learn? Just as an example in temptation, I don't believe that's the primary point of this passage, but it's certainly an application. Do we realize when Paul says in Galatians that if you will walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh? He uses a double negative there. You will not. I, I say you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Is the reason why we succumb to temptation on many occasions is because we're simply not walking in the Spirit. We're not filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3.16 talks about being filled with the Spirit in another category. It's letting the Word of Christ, as we read this morning, dwell in you richly. And finally, your identity in the second Adam changes everything. Your identity, my identity in the second Adam changes what? Everything. In the first Adam, we find out in Romans 5 that we all die. But in the second Adam, he is not only on the cross taking your place. Please hear me. When our Lord Jesus resisted and did not yield to the temptation to sin, he was providing active obedience for you and me too. And I want you to see this. Right before the temptation, what happens? We see the Trinity, right? We see it described. The Lord Jesus is baptized. What happens? The Holy Spirit as a dove descends upon him. Look at the end of chapter 3 with me. And behold, a voice from heaven said what? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm what? Well pleased. Say that with me one more time. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you realize that being in the second Adam, we receive the same commendation from our father that our older brother receives? I've been speaking with some of you recently about how you view yourself. We live in a world that talks about an identity crisis, but believer, when you think about your identity, 
Do you think about how God views you now in the second Adam? How would it change your guilt, your works-based sanctification, this idea that I'm not doing enough, I'm not pleasing enough? If you could hear the words from the Father that says your name, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son in whom I'm perfectly pleased. For some of us, it would open up a culture of grace in our Christian lives we've never experienced. We live as legalists. We live with a harshness that is really saying, I hope I can can make it through. I want to make Jesus happy with me. I want to make the Father happy with me. He couldn't be any more happier than he is and satisfied and pleased than he is with you being in Jesus. Your spotless, perfect righteousness. If I didn't think there were some believers in here and I am among you because I find myself in this old treadmill too often. But some of us today need to just rejoice in our Savior. That he obeyed even though we disobeyed. But that's the point of the gospel. He came as your vicarious, your substitute. Not only in death and resurrection, but in life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son. We believe, Lord, that he not only didn't sin, but he couldn't. Lord Jesus, you are the God-man. And you walk through the temptations that our first Adam, our first father, who we died in, who we sinned with, you walked through it successfully and you never yielded. And now we have this perfect righteousness that's available to be placed on our account because you, the righteous one, took our sin. We ask, Lord, that you would just press these gospel deeps deep into our hearts. Lord, we are so prone to wonder. We're so prone to jump back on the performance treadmill so quickly. I pray that chains would fall off even this afternoon, that you would rescue us from our own works to please you, and that we would rest in the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.